The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. You can think of every system, every community as like a generation starship. It has to be self-sustaining and it has to be enclosed and it has to be balanced on a number of different axes or everybody in it is going to die. This week we have some very special guest hosts sharing a recording of a panel they moderated about the future of energy and where we can draw inspiration from science fiction. This panel was moderated by the ladies that run the most excellent podcast, Métis in Space, and when we heard about it, we wanted to share it with you. But before we get to the panel, let's meet our guest hosts. With me is Molly Swain, a Métis from Calgary studying in the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Molly, welcome to Science for the People. Hi, happy to be here. And also with me is Chelsea Vowell, a Métis from the Plains Cree-speaking community of Lac-Saint-Anne, Alberta, Canada. She is the author of the book Indigenous Rights, a guide to First Nations, Métis, and Inuit issues in Canada. She holds a Bachelor of Education, a Bachelor of Law, and is currently a graduate student at the University of Alberta. Chelsea, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So first, before we get to the panel, can you give the quick elevator pitch of what your podcast, Métis in Space, is for those who haven't heard of it before? Uh, Métis in Space is an Indigenous feminist sci-fi podcast where we drink a bottle of wine, always red, and watch uh, an episode or a movie that features indigeneity in some way, and then completely tear it apart. I wouldn't have expected indigenous tropes to be such a common theme in sci-fi, but after I started listening to your show and started paying more attention to it, it does come up surprisingly often. Yeah, we were surprised as well. It's one of those things as science fiction fans, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of this stuff before, but it's never even really stuck out to us mm-hmm. uh, until we started taking, you know, that, that closer look at, at what there is. And I think you know, what we've realized is that science fiction, you know, not only is it a way to build futures and and to look forward, it's also a way to set a stage to play out contemporary social issues. And of course, living in a settler state like Canada, one of the big social relations that exists is between settlers and Indigenous people and settlers trying to, you know, come to terms with colonialism and play out their own anxieties and their, their own emotions about it. So, you know, everything from um, you know, taking over the land and taking over indigeneity to, you know, being invaded by aliens. You know, these are very colonial um, concepts. I'm curious now and wondering if this is a series of tropes that is more likely to come up in science fiction created by uh, settler cultures. So I'm thinking Canada, North America, Australia, those cultures that have um, a still kind of functional settler state, essentially, it's still very much a part of our daily life and is built into the structure of our societies. I'm wondering if there's the same kind of tropes inherent in science fiction coming from different countries, or if I guess probably they have their own issues that they're trying to work through. Yeah, I'd imagine there's probably some differences and and probably also some similarities because, you know, just the countries that you named are not the only settler colonial nations that have an indigenous, like a captive indigenous population. So like pretty much anywhere throughout the Americas um, as well are settler colonial nations. But we don't, we haven't really um, delved into Spanish language uh, sci-fi, which, you know, now you got my brain sort of moving there. That would be, that would be a good idea. It'd be interesting to see 
if they do share some of the tropes. Yeah, the, the one that really popped into my head was District 9 out of South Africa. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are definitely there are definitely some similarities, but I would say that it's, you know, it's more of a Venn diagram mm-hmm. of, you know, compared to what's going on here. Um, there's, there's for sure some overlap, but I think that the way that it plays out, you know, and, and District 9 is very much supposed to be um, a direct metaphor for apartheid mm-hmm. uh, in a way that, you know, we don't, we haven't experienced up here. It's interesting to me as I think more deeply about science fiction uh, and some of the tropes we see often in science fiction that it, a lot of it's very concerned with one side or the other of the idea of a settler culture. So either representing tropes of indigeneity uh, and us sort of invading those or repurposing them or replaying those kinds of colonizations where where the kind of human characters are the, are the colonizers or kind of inverting them a little bit and having the earth be uh, invaded by a colonizing alien of some kind. It's interesting that both sides of those tropes appear quite often in science fiction. Yeah, almost always, right? Yeah. Like it's either, yeah, it's either the aliens are the evil invaders or the humans are untrustworthy um, people who betray you know, these peaceful aliens. But usually if they're, you know, there's a few humans who can see what's going on, sort of the the dances with wolves character, you yeah. know, who just, who really understand and appreciate the native culture. Yeah. yeah but yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's one of the things that Chelsea pointed out um, in one of our early seasons. Uh, and that is that settlers, you know, seem to feel this like need uh, seems to be really embedded in the culture. Like the, the pointing out the good Indians and the bad Indians, mm. you know, like, these are the bad, savage natives who we shouldn't like. These are the noble, kind, gentle, you yeah, know, one, one with, with nature. nature. Yeah, yeah. Uh, native people who, you know, we, we should be appreciating. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it all kind of plays out through that dynamic is, is are we the villains or are we the tragic heroes? Yeah. So what is it that you love about sci-fi? I mean, what keeps you coming back to the genre? It, it imagines the future um, like we, we talk about this all the time. Sci-fi has this in- incredible ability to put us into the future without describing in, you know, complex detail exactly how we got there. We get to skip all the dirty, you know, getting there bit and just be in the future and imagine what it could be like from all sorts of different perspectives. So near future, far future, like post-humanism, all of it. And, and the thing about it too, you know, not only does it reflect social anxieties of the time, which is really interesting, when, especially when you're reading across uh, decades, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it also, it, it grapples with the big uh, issues that face humanity in a way that I think that a lot of other genres uh, just don't necessarily have the space for, <laughs> the space for. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it, it's this, it just puts you into this future space where you get to think about the big picture in a way that I just, man, it just is awesome. Yeah. And I think that for, you know, indigenous people in particular, you know, we've been told for hundreds of years by the settler overculture that we don't have a future, Mm. you know, um, like national parks were, uh, you know, put in place partially to try to conserve indigenous people along with, you know, animal species. Yeah. Right. Um, there's this, there's this idea that we're, we're dying out, you know, even now, right. We're too dysfunctional to continue to live. Um, you know, we're, we're weak, we're, we're on our way out, Mm -hmm. um, you know, to make way for, you know, settler, settler culture and settler people. And to of course clear the land. 
Um, so I think science fiction, and I think it's one of the reasons that, you know, we're, we're starting to realize there's a huge number of indigenous science fiction fans out there is that, you know, science fiction is all about looking into the future and seeing yourself there and imagining, you know, how it can be, how things can be different, how things can be the same, how we're going to deal with problems. Um, but it, it lets us be in the future mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, most cultural forms just don't. Yeah. So back in November, you went to the Generation Energy Conference in Winnipeg to moderate a panel about uh, science, science fiction, and the future of energy, um, which is the panel we're going to hear today. But what made you interested in moderating this panel? I think the first thing was that neither of us know really anything about science. Um, you know, we're nerds, but we're, we have a very specific niche of nerdiness. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, the first thing for me was, you know, this is like, unlike anything that we've ever done before, unlike anything that I could have imagined us, you know, being invited to do, um, which was really exciting. I was, I was totally pumped that we got to like, sort of pick from among many different scientists yeah. to talk to. We were like, oh my God, we could, we could ask a quantum physicist, for example, how this works. Or, you know, we were like, we can have real scientists explain our science, like our science fiction, um, you know, geekiness to us. And, and they just like gave us basically like a binder of scientists that we were like flipping through yeah. being like, oh, this person looks neat. Ooh, AI. That sounds awesome. Oh, Internet of Things. I don't even know what that is. Like, so cool. It's so great. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to delay anymore. Let us jump into that panel. And if you are interested in listening to Métis in Space, we will have links to get you started in the show notes for this episode, which, as always, you can find at scienceforthepeople.ca. So, Tansanito Temtik, and welcome to Odapemsu Skoywak Kitsikisakuk Métis in Space, Molly Swinitsiagason, Chelsea Valnitsiagason, Otusquanikitsotsen. And now uh, we're going to get our, our guests to introduce themselves. We did a crash course in Cree. Nitsigatson, Eric. University of Manitoba. Nitsigatson, John. And I come from the unceded traditional territories of the Musqueam people, otherwise known as Vancouver. Nitsigatson, Aaron Bow. I am a science fiction author from Nebraska, but I live in Kitchener-Waterloo. Let's give them a hand for that Cree. There we go. That's how fast it can be. That was awesome. All right. So to jump into it, we just wanted to start with, you know, really basic question. Who are you and what is it that you do? What what sorts of, what do you science when you science? In 30 seconds or less. In 30 seconds do, or less. Do, do, okay. I woke up one day and uh, decided to do renewables full time. Uh, my wife at the time said, you know, you're working a lot and you're doing renewables for fun in the evenings and weekends. Why don't you do it full time? So one day I just decided to do full time do renewables and uh, it just shot up exponentially. So I ended up doing just about every renewables that you can think of. And I learn every day. I discover every day and I work with uh, great students. I'm surrounded by young people and uh, we innovate. We think uh, some of the stuff is hard. There's no question. It's, uh, it's hard. It needs math, you know, it needs modeling, uh, it needs great science and models and stuff. But we innovate and we push forward and, uh, we work as a team and it's always exciting every day to go to work. And that's what I, I basically decided to do what I do in my retirement, which was renewable energy. So I'm Mr. Renewables morning, day, evenings, even in my sleep. So that's all I do. So, so when you're talking about renewables, like, could you give us some examples about what that is as people who are not si super science literate? Well, I, I think we, we all know intuitively that we have to go to 100% renewables. What it means is you have to live from recent sunlight. Right now, we only live from ancient sunlight. 
So in Canada, 90, 86% of the time we use energy, we do it through ancient sunlight of millions of years ago, harnessed into fossil fuels. And that's not a good thing. Uh, we have to wake up and we will transition to 100% renewable. The question is, are we smart enough as a species is A, have good enough scientists that we have to do it before this date? And B, do we have enough good scientists to say, well, here are all the technologies we have as a portfolio to do the job and, and, and address the question. So I don't worry. I mean, I don't look too much about when. But I do worry how. And I developed brand new technologies from way at the beginning that nobody knows about. And I push forward and I break down walls and I have a lot of barriers. And you have to keep a good sense of humor. <laughs> John? Before I started my current job, I was a laser scientist. and That uh, sounds so science. Well, very sciencey. And in fact, I did something called coherent control, which is, sounds even more sciencey and less useful. Nod sagely. Um, but currently, I'm uh, vice president of an organization called CIFAR, which is the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. Uh, Minister Duncan actually alluded to us without alluding to us when she talked about artificial intelligence. And so CIFAR, by its name, is in the business of supporting research that we hope will be the next big thing, but right now is just somebody's crazy idea. And artificial intelligence was one of those. We started supporting it 30 years ago. CIFAR has been around for 35 years. Uh, we were one of the early supporters of Jeff Hinton, and so the overnight success in machine learning. Jeff published his key paper in machine learning in 1986, so more than 30 years ago is when that machine learning. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that's when machine learning was really a crazy idea, and now it's the hottest thing going. And uh, PhD graduates in machine learning command salaries of you know quarter million dollars a year starting salary. So we are in the wrong field. <laughs> yeah, truly, me too. Truly. <laughs> Truly. I'm an author. You, what what should I be doing? Machine learning. Machine learning. Backpropagation. That's Back what you want to learn about. Okay. Okay. Take note, everybody. Yeah. yeah. This is time, to, Wait, time we, to switch our CVs up. Can we can we go back in time again? I don't, see, I don't see why not. Paradox. Are there any uh, like sort of quantum physicists, physicists who could tell us if we would actually destroy no? ourselves? Okay. Well, let's assume yes. I, if, if nobody says no, then yeah, it let's go do possible. it. Okay. All right. Great. All right, Aaron. Um, an origin story, huh? Uh, I used to be a physicist. I used to study high energy particle physics. Um, yeah, nothing practical. Uh, we failed to find the quark gluon plasma. That was my great contribution to science. Go us. Um, then I dropped out of graduate school to become a poet which is a, a really lucrative career I mood. I, I, I really recommend that if you're looking to build a prosperous future for other people, uh, not for yourself. Um, I made a living eventually as a science writer because it turns out if you both know what a quark is and can translate physics into English in complete sentences, there's a demand for that. And I still do a lot of that. I do a lot of storytelling around science, helping scientists tell their stories because people are interested, but it's difficult to make the bridge, so I'm a bridge builder. But I'm also a science fiction author and a poet. I write for young people. Um, my most recent book is The Scorpion Rules, which is 500 years in the future, um, post-climate change, low-carbon future. It's, it's marketed as a dystopian, but it's really a utopia with cracks in it. Except for these seven people who are having a really hard time, the world is in pretty decent shape. Um, but of course, the story is about the seven people. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, that's a great segue um, because, as we know, or 
as you may know, if you are at all a big giant nerd like we are and love sci-fi, science fiction is really very much about exploration, right? It's about, it's about world building. It's about imagining possibilities for the future, for different worlds, for, for new types of ways of being and relating to people. So one of the things that we wanted to talk to you about just to get started is, you know, what, what's your favorite science fiction, fantasy, horror, speculative fiction? And, you know, has that inspired you at all? Does your work relate to that? Have you drawn anything from sci-fi? Have you written yourself into your own sci-fi stories? <laughs> Mary Sue it up. Boys. Nothing. No, I'm always interested to see if scientists are interested in science fiction. I, how can you not be? This is, my not th- be? this is what I don't understand. How can you be into science and not be a big giant nerd with like Isaac Asimov novels like piled under your pillow? Like how can you how can you science without that? Well, well, you're you going to tell us, really? Well, you brought up Asimov. I love Asimov. I read Asimov, but you know, I'm an engineer. I'm a gear. And uh, I look at my lifetime, and I don't believe right now the answers are out there. Later on, we will have to move out of the Earth because the sun's going to burn up. But right now, we've got real problems, okay? This is like a chess game. We have a real issue, and the answers aren't out there. The answer, the problem is people. Why are we going to go through climate change is only a people problem. I work on technology. I can influence people, hardly none. I'm not a scientific writer. I'm, uh, I'm an engineer. So I hope people out there will change the people. And there are, and please trust, there's guys that are out there trying to find solution. It's hard. Uh, we get very little support. Uh, we love what we're doing. Um, and right now I don't have time for science fiction. Uh, the science fiction is really we're living it. We've got 2050. How old is your 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 your? your she's she's your, your, four months. How old yeah. is she going to be when it's fifty uh, five hundred parts per million? Uh, four five hundred parts per million in in the atmosphere of CO two. Uh, that's why I brought you here. You tell me. She's going to be. Uh, it's going to. She well. She's uh, fifteen. So I have to subtract fifteen. So she'll be about uh, thirty five years old. So so kids right now, you got to understand that there's more pe- the, the people. Most of the people living on the planet are young, and they'll be experiencing five hundred parts per million of CO two. I can't tell you what that means. I work on the solution, and I work at the distributed scale. That means for remote communities, for for uh, villages, for First Nations. I don't work on the big stuff. I work on the small stuff, and I work at the forefront when nobody's thinking about it. So, when we started kinetic turbines, we were core people in Canada saying, "Hey, why don't we put windmills in the water?" Oh yeah, that's cool. That's cool. And you're like, "Oh, what's the physics?" Okay, so we started off in our basements at midnight, okay, and then we, we showed up at Manitoba, I showed up at Manitoba Hydro, and they said, I want to do kinetic turbines, and they said, well, how about this, how about that, I said, so I went back to the evenings, worked it out, you know, and said, yeah, I think this could work, right, so now I ran the National Center for Hydro Kinetic Turbines, and we know that we're going to beat the price, but it's a lot of hard work. I mean, it sounds like you're doing your own world building here. <laughs> you, wow. you know, just science fiction really at its best is all about solving the big problems and asking the big questions. And it sounds like you're the one going out and, and doing that. I'm in Eric's world. world. I'm my own science fiction. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wake up every day to, to work out technologies that once I'm retired, they'll, 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 they'll have fruition. So they, I probably won't see them uh, exp- uh, go to market in my lifetime, but I developed the building blocks to go there and i also help other people so 
Uh, For example, I run a center and we'll help anybody that comes to our center to commercialize their technology. So we drop the costs of how they they develop the technology. And we're all about innovation and we're all about reducing the cost so that people will go in and say, hey, you know, I will buy this for my community. I'll own and operate and it's safe and it's uh, low cost and it's you don't need to be a scientist or a very trained person to be able to use it. So so what's happening in the future in the distributed world is people start to take care of their own business, their own generation of energy. And yes, there is there's a price to pay, time, involvement, and it's not another person's going to do it for you. You're going to have to be the prime uh, motivator within your house and within your community. So my house is going 100% renewable. Uh, it's a work in progress and People that know me, please don't laugh. Okay. <laughs> it's not a science fiction project. It is a real project, but I'm working at it bit by bit. And I'm showing, trying to show that you could do it for $25,000, the price of a renovation of a kitchen. Uh, but do it, but I am doing it myself. Eh? So mm-hmm. it's like, it's not for everybody that can hit that cost. So I have a Tesla battery in my basement and I can't get it connected because I have a lot of problems with people. And yes, I do feel like a science fiction movies when they come and tell me that my power cable has to be go, grow in size because I self-generate inside the house, but, you know, people need science. So you're the crotchety scientist in the base, literally in the basement, getting mad at people who are coming in and, and, and messing with your with what you want to do. That's, that's what well, he would be played by Jeff Goldblum. Right? And Obviously. no one would be listening to him. Yes. Yeah. Right? Well, it's worse than that. <laughs> I spent 25 years in Raja Yoga meditating and it doesn't prepare me to the frustration I get when I get to regulators and I have to step away for a few months to 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 get my cool. So I don't oh. know if that's science fiction. So there's a bit of Hulk in there too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You wouldn't like me when I'm okay. <laughs> there's reason okay. Okay. keep that heartbeat low. Yeah. 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 All right. John and Aaron. Speculative fiction, I'd uh, put Murakami at the top of my list. He's very good. Um, but I of a generation that I grew up reading Tolkien. I read all four volumes out loud three times because I have three children. So I've almost memorized it. And, of course, Asimov and Ray Bradbury. Again, I'm of that generation. So I feel like Asimov is very lasers, honestly. When I think lasers, Asimov is one of those very technical science fiction writers that I think does. Bio- biochemist. Biochemist? He was a biochemist? What? Yes, he was. Oh, I totally know what that means. <laughs> yes. Biology and chemistry combined into one that you could put together. Brand new field. And, and do things with. <laughs> so what you're saying is it was Tolkien that got you into lasers. <laughs> yeah, more or less. <laughs> so does, you know, are you inspired at all by, by any of the science fiction that you see coming out? I mean, a lot of what we're seeing right now is, is very dystopian. It's very dark. Um, it tends to have a lot of, you know, themes of, of rebellion, of suspicion of, you know, the government, suspicion of corporations, um, you know, suspicion, like sort of a highly individualist science fiction. You know, you kind of have the, you know, the Katniss Everdeen, for example, from The Hunger Games uh, comes to mind. Um, do you see any of that in the work that you're doing or, or do you see any of that when you're when you're out there trying to get your work, you know, completed? Well, one of our programs... Um one of our key researchers published a book called Why Nations Fail. So I guess we do deal with real life dystopias. And so like Eric, I worry about the present as much as the future. Um, social inequality is another thing that we study in CIFAR. And so, yeah, we do worry about dystopias. They generally arise as a result of government policy rather than some science thing. <clears throat> oh, I'm, I'm, 
absolutely influenced by the science fiction I, I grew up on with my tremendous crush on Mr. Spock and, and <laughs> deep, di- deep, deep identification with Doctor Who and all that stuff. Yeah. I was, my husband says we were into Doctor Who before Doctor Who was cool. And I'm like, Oh, sweetie, I have news for you. Still not cool. But anyway, um, I think I'm hearing some, you know, I don't have time for science fiction, and I, I completely understand where you're coming from with that, because I am one of the person, people who knows what, you know, 500 parts per million looks like, and what, you know, what rapid deglaciation is, and just, uh, you can see the disaster coming. It's like being the uh, engineer, uh, the engineer of the Titanic was aboard the Titanic, did you know that? And, you know, had the maps and knew exactly what was happening as the ship was going down. And so there's a real sadness and desperation in the climate scientists and the re- renewable energy scientists that I talk to. And it's, it's interesting, but it's also inspiring because they also all have this, but we could do this solutions on hand. I mean, it's going to be hard. It's going to be desperately hard. We need to start now. But, I think one of the things that we're lacking right now is the renewable energy Star Trek. We need the positive, optimistic vision of a decarbonized future. Not just like a decarbonized vision of what we've got now, but like a green, um, local, a different story with more voices involved. I think that could mobilize support behind what we're doing now and get people to do the hard work but we don't have that. We don't have that story in the public consciousness. We have the fear, but we don't have the story. I, I, this is interesting because, uh, you know, what I'm hearing a lot of is, is you're, you guys are talking about the science and, you know, science can only take us so far, but it's people who have to take us the rest of the way. Um, and that I, I find that that has a lot of parallels with what we're doing. You know, we, we, we're trying to work on decolonization and, you know, and you can come up with all sorts of terms and you can indigenize this and indigenize that and have reconciliation moments and all this kind of thing. But if people don't follow through, if, if there isn't some sort of fundamental change, then none of that's actually going to happen. And a lot of, you know, when we talk about decolonization, uh, it's, you know, like we like to say, it's not a metaphor. It has to do with the land. It has to do with our relationships with the land. And if, if science, uh, you know, if science is just relying on a certain sort of technology to save us from ourselves, but we don't actually change, then it sounds like, you know, you guys are saying we're headed for disaster anyway, right? We have to change how we think about things and how we relate. Could I? Well, just, uh, just one of the things that, speaking as a scientist, I think it's very clear that if we rely on science and technology alone, we're not going to get there. I mean, I think scientists, when I, I studied in a previous, previous life, tropospheric aerosols and their forcing impact on climate change. And scientists are frustrated because the public doesn't understand them, doesn't understand evidence. And it's because scientists are fairly crappy at telling stories. Yeah, but there's also an active rejection of evidence and expertise going on. Um, you there's know, that too. there's that too. Yeah. yeah. But also, I think that there's getting, getting back to dystopia. I think there's a real danger that, that when people like Margaret Atwood push the dystopian line to an extreme, there's a danger that the public will say, Oh, that's the storyline, you know, we're all screwed. Right, and just and give so up. And yeah. so there's no point in doing anything. But you, prepare you the bunkers. You sound so negative, but you, but you also seem like the most hopeful here. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you actually, you got to remember something. When scientists talk, they're conservative. They don't want to overestimate the answer, so they underestimate the answer. So I think if you would dig down deeper, you would find that the situation is probably a bit more dark than what it is hopeful. One of my questions for, for everybody is, 
um, say, you know, 50 years or 300 years into the future, however far you want to project it, you know, what are some of the real fundamental changes that society is going to need to make, right? Either on the individual level and the choice scale or, you know, socially, like, collectively, what kinds of changes are we going to have to make? And how does what you're doing right now fit in with that? Me? Everybody's looking at me like, oh, goodness. You're the poet. I'm the poet. I'm the science fiction. I think there's a strong chance that the future is going to look more like the past than people think that it might, because that's essentially what not sustainable means. It means we will not be going on like this. And you could pick any aspect of it that you wanted. Um, food is a big one, right? Are we going to continue to ship food around the world in refrigerated cargo ships from heaven only knows where, from agriculture, you know, highly modified food, from, you know, raspberries from Chile in January? Should this be a normal thing? Probably not, right? Um, on the other hand, could we get rid of genetically modified organisms? Could we just shut off the, um, the Haber-Bosch process, which is the process that gets nitrogen from the air into the ground, into the crop? Probably not, because two-thirds of the nitrogen in your body comes from that process. So we're not turning off, we're not turning off chemical agriculture tomorrow unless we're also willing to decrease the population by two-thirds, which seems like a no. To but are me. you leading to Soylent Green here? Oh, please, no. Please I tell am. me we don't have to no, eat our poo. No, no, no. <laughs> I just, I, you know, no, I just don't no. want to have to go there. No, but we need a new food system and we need it urgently and it needs to be sustainable. It needs to be local. It needs to be slower. So I think there's a lot of things things in the future that are going to impact our lives on a very basic, very, you know, storyteller level, like what surface you sleep on and what you have for breakfast and how you get to school if you go to school, um, how you get to work if you go to work. Um, will we all be staying in our homes and networking? Uh, should we really be flying millions, of, hundreds of people across the country to talk about decarbonizing the future? Yeah, that, that's it yeah. is a bit ironic. Yeah. It is a little. Um, but so, do you see? Do you see? Like, because this sounds like you know, um, there's so much talk about the world expanding, and we're we're so interconnected, and all this. This sounds like a sort of a shrinkage and becoming more localized, and and that's all. Like, what I think is interesting about this is when we talk, when Indigenous peoples talk about this, mm-hmm. right? Uh, words like tribalism and primitive, and you know, you want to go back to the 19th century and stuff like that. When we talk about you know sustainable lifestyles that we ha- that we had for thousands and thousands of years here, it's always seen as like a regression, as sort of anti technological stance. But what you're saying is actually very pro technological, but just using it in different ways. Yeah, you can think of every system, every community as like a generation starship. It has to be self sustaining, and it has to be enclosed, and it has to be balanced on a number of different axes, or everybody in it is going to die. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily going backwards. I think it's all see, history see, is a history is a pendulum. It, it swings, right? <laughs> it's it's a circle. It's okay. The circle of life. This no, I'm not going to sing uh, it. It's probably copyrighted. We'd get slapped. <laughs> I think it falls it. under fair use, but you could go there for it. Yeah. Uh, One of the things that would be nice to have, and I think necessary for a sustainable future is reduction of inequality. I mean, there is enough food to feed the world. That's very clear. Even a world of 10 billion people. But there's not enough with the current distribution system, with the current inequality that exists. And so I think a sustainable future is one, in fact, it's it's quite the opposite of going backwards. It's going forwards. I mean, society has always promoted inequality. Policy has promoted inequality. 
And so getting rid of inequality, I think, is, is going to be necessary both for an energy future and for a human future. See, this is where I think that like indigenous peoples have some things to offer too, because oh, absolutely. I, mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want to be pan Indian here because there were some societies that were very hierarchical and, you know, uh, but there's also many, many examples among indigenous peoples that, that there, that sort of level of inequality didn't exist because you had to rely on, on every, everybody was valuable. You couldn't waste anybody. Right. And so putting people in, into positions of uh, subservience or being out of balance and, and in bad relation with, with the world around you, you know, is life or death. And we're there, we're there again, but it's like, nobody wants to recognize it. Right. And so I, I just find it interesting. Like, I feel like, I feel like indigenous peoples have to like team up with scientists <laughs> to like, to get people to understand that when we, when we talk about sustainability, um, and, and good relationships that we're not, this isn't mumbo jumbo. This is like, this is fundamental, um, you know, symbiosis of humans with our environment. And, you know, we, we can get there, we can get there with science. We don't have to reject and, and, you know, burn everything down and throw our wooden shoes into the, into the factory <laughs> machines, right? Um, and I have a sort of like follow up because I know you do AI. Mm-hmm. And so you're talking about reducing inequality. And there have been a couple, I think, pretty famous, uh, stories that have come out recently of, of people trying to design AIs and those AIs ending up just being extremely racist, uh, extremely sexist, reproducing, you know, a lot of the inequalities that we see now. So in your opinion, as somebody who, you know, knows the ins and outs of, of AI and has been involved in that, you know, do you think it's possible to be using AI technology as it stands to be changing society for the better? Or do you think that society has to change in order to create AIs that are not going to simply replicate the extremely hierarchical, you know, marginalizations that are currently happening? I think the latter. I think that society has to change. I mean, artificial intelligence, I mean, the branch that we deal with at CIFAR, machine learning, the, the bias gets built into the, to the learning algorithm by the data you provide it with. And so if you're a bunch of, you know, 25 year old white male geeks in Silicon Valley feeding data into a machine learning algorithm, it will learn quickly from the bias data it gets. Okay. And there's a, a hideously famous example of, Google identifying an African American family as gorillas, you know, that was just an awful thing, but it was, it was a necessary outcome of feeding loads and loads of pictures of white people through Facebook, okay, and through Google searches. So AI will promote equality in society when society becomes more equal because AI, the machine learning is based on the data that you feed it. So this notion that machines are unbiased, yeah, they're unbiased, but they have bias put into them by the, by the people feeding data. So um, you've talked a bit about how you feel like the technology you work with can can save the world if things change enough if there if if there stops being blockages, but um, we're sort of interested too in knowing if if there's any potential pitfalls here if, if your technology could actually destroy the world, like what are some of the, what are some of the problems? Start starting at the end here. Storytelling has rarely destroyed the world. Um, but I do think um, we need to think about this. I mean, there is so much urgency around acting about decarbonizing our energy, and that is entirely appropriate because what else are we going to do? We need to do it. We need to do it now, or what will we ch- tell our children, right? We knew what we, want, we needed to do, but we didn't do it. Yeah. I, that's not acceptable. Um, but to do it without thinking about it, 
and to do it without stopping and telling yourself a story about it and imagining it out into the future. Like the grid, for example. We pretty much need to either replace or possibly leapfrog the grid. I'm not an expert. I don't entirely understand it. But it's clear to me that it's falling apart. Um, and it's clear to me that we need a next generation grid. But the, the grid embodies a hundred years of social prejudice and, you know, who's got the power and who doesn't have the power quite literally. So do we just rebuild it on the same tracks with new superconducting wires? Do we switch to AC transmission? That's not good enough. We need to stop and think about what's next um, and develop a new story and something. I really do think it needs to be local, but, you know, I'm, I'm hardly a carbon expert. Um, but, yeah, I think if, if we just barrel ahead, we could end up recreating what we have, but more so or recreating some different prejudice that we built into the system, but more so, definitely could happen. We have a tendency to, and so I'll, I'll not use an energy example, I'll use, the again, the artificial intelligence example. We develop technology quite quickly. We, we apply it quite quickly. It's in the you know, corporate interest to adapt machine learning to you know, Facebook and Google and you know, all of these companies, we are just now asking what is the societal implication? What does it mean to be a human if we can build a machine that can learn like a human being? We're not there yet, but let's imagine that we get there. Um, talking about science fiction, you know, what happens if we actually do build intelligent robots? Um, that's coming. And the experts in the field think it's still maybe a generation away, but it is coming. And so there's a tendency always in our society, in Western society, not necessarily in indigenous society, but in Western society, to develop a technological solution and then afterwards ask the question, what does this mean for society? And and it can mean good things for society or it can mean bad things for society. John and Aaron, what do you see, say like 50 years in the future, what is your utopia when you think about our energy future? What does it look like and how is what you're doing going to bring us there? Give us base, best case scenarios here. Yeah, let's, like let's it can finish be on a positive. Completely, you know, think sci-fi. It can be anything you want. Yeah. If if, if you had enough resources, money, and political will behind you, what would you accomplish with what you're doing? The experience of of research and and human progress is that we almost certainly can't predict what will be key technology. What will be you know the salvation fifty years into the future? We can. We're pretty good at predicting. You know what will be the key technology a year from now or what we have presently. I think 50 years into the future, anytime I've seen I mean, the National Research Council in the States would used to, I think they've given up now, publishing, you know, futures of technology and they'd ask scientists like myself, what's going to be the, the next big thing? And they generally miss the next big thing. Yeah, I know, but it's so funny when they do. I like, know, some it's of the things great. That, you look, you read like the pulp science fiction from the 50s, you know, those 25 cent ones and some of the ideas that they had. It's hilarious. So, so Sometimes the science fiction writers do. I mean, Gibson got the internet, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? But, but, but you're, you see, because you're hedging a little. You're like, I don't want to predict, because you okay. don't want to be that guy and who would look back and we're like, ha, ha, but just do it. Just do it. Do it. Do it. Okay. Someone so, record it. Yeah. So someone record it. So what I can say is is my organization is dedicated to the long-term vision. It is dedicated to the decades into the future. So we're not so interested in what's the current uh, technology, but what's the next technology. So one program that we're supporting, 
our only energy program is uh, called bio-inspired solar energy. And it's basically, can you create fuel from sunlight and carbon dioxide direct rather than photovoltaics and then using the electricity to then, you know, drive a catalyst to, to, to reduce carbon dioxide. Okay, that's one program. But, you know, the machine learning program that we've been running for decades now, maybe that's the future. You know, intelligent cities, talking about efficiency and reducing demand, intelligent cities. Um, other programs, we're interested in in what institutions and what educational systems reduce inequality. And, and uh, a question that you did ask, what what's our connection, CIFAR's connection with Indigenous communities, CIFAR, from its very beginning, has been concerned with early childhood development. That was Fraser Mustard's original goal, was to understand the impact of, of social inequality and income inequality on child development and the long-term impact of that. We're now working with uh, our child and brain development group is working with a First Nation in southern Alberta on an early childhood intervention. So normally interventions occur with school-age kids. The argument, the lessons we've learned from epigenetics is that if you wait until past three, you're too late. And so they're working with the community, developing interventions for prenatal to three years old and seeing if that has an impact on literacy and education outcomes in this nation. Now, will we see a result tomorrow? No. We'll know the answer 15, 20 years from now. Thank you for that. Wow. Um, 50 years in a utopia, huh? Um, I don't know. It could happen. It could happen. Sure, it could happen. Um, I spend a lot of time, because I write for young people, I spend a lot of time in junior highs and high schools. And I know this is unfashionable. And if in, my kids are, are 9 and 11, so talk to me again in five years. But I love teenagers. I really do. They are so interested and so passionate and so positive and so global. And they're more aware of their prejudices than I was when I was a teenager, certainly. Um, there are a lot of interesting international things happening where people are building virtual communities of like-minded people, which is new since when I was a teenager. I think that there is a possibility for a positive future in that. I worry that in terms of carbon shift, it's... You know, God bless Malcolm Gladwell for introducing the word tipping point into our vocabulary. I think we're past the tipping point. I think uh, the ice caps will melt, probably not over the next hundred years, but over the next thousand. I think the temperature will come up. Two um, percent is two degrees is the target. Um, I think we're on a path for something more like four. Well, let me give you an example. If the temperature comes up by four degrees, the Yangtze Delta where Shanghai is, where the Yangtze spills into the sea. There are about 150 million people that live there. They will pretty much all be displaced in another 100 years. We need to build a future where we can take in that kind of displacement and build communities around displaced people, around virtual cultures, around sharing. So you can take in displaced people and build, you know, because of the thing that happens in my book is, you know, they all go to war and start shooting each other. Surely that's not our only option. And I feel like if you put today's teenagers in charge, that would not be what they do. So I'm somewhat hopeful that um, today's young people who will be in charge in 50 years, who will be the old people in 50 years, will have built something that's a little bit more inclusive 
and a little bit more global, but at the same time more intensely local and more connected and more thoughtful and more outward looking than we can do today. I'm, I'm so impressed by how much you guys talk about things like social inequality and the idea of organizing around displacement and, and things like that as being sort of central tenets to you, to the science that you do. Cause to be honest, I didn't expect that. Um, you know, when we look at science, often we feel as non-scientists, uh, or I'm going to speak for myself here and maybe Molly feels wildly different, but that often, um, you know, people are so focused on their, on the technology and feel that science is, is apolitical. Right. Like, it, it, and, and you do see scientists who really do push that, you know, it's science is apolitical. It's just, it's, it's, you know, it is what it is and it doesn't matter about people, but this kind of, you know, even though you're, you're painting very grim pictures here, you know, but, but it's also, I think people do need to hear that. Uh, but you're also giving me a bit of hope that the, that what we require, that what we need, uh, you know, to have, uh, to have that social inequality addressed, to built in, uh, be a feature of the system, not, not just like something you tack on at the end, um, that people are actually thinking about that makes me feel a lot better about kind of the next 300 years. Uh, so we're getting close to the end. We do have time for um, some questions. If anybody has questions for our panelists, uh, I see there's somebody up here right now. Uh, hi. Is this on? It is. Okay. Um, environmental impacts are um, embodied in a lot of products and services and, and, and activities other than just the generation of the electricity, right? So decarbonization is going to involve a lot of things. Uh, yet, when I attend these conversations, and I'm at a lot of them, I hear very little distinction ever noted between decarbonizing by 2050 and building renewables by 2050. So my first question for the panelists is, do you see a distinction? And how material do you think that distinction is? Um, can I ask a second question? Okay. Uh, the second question is, there's a view of the history of the human use of energy, um, which is articulated really well by a guy named Michael Schellenberger, but I don't think it's his idea, um, that... Um, the trend through history has been to higher density, higher portability, and lower impacts. So as you go from wood to coal to oil and so on, um, those are the trends. And Schellenberger's point is that by asking billions of humans to move toward renewables, you face the challenge of asking them to reverse that trend and go upstream toward higher land use, lower portability, lower density, and so on. Um, his argument would be that uh, you can get a certain number of people in organizations to swim upstream, but it's very hard to get the entire human population to swim upstream that way. Um, he would say where that points to is increased use of hydrogen and nuclear and electrification through hydrogen and nuclear. Uh, I'd be curious to know what you think of that. Well, that's a lot of issues there. Uh, I depart from uh, other people. I, I look at Let's just bypass the sequestration of fossil fuel, of trying to make fossil fuels work. So I basically look at the upstream end. I don't focus on the downstream and I don't get into policy decisions that are policymakers in making Canada because I don't have a renewable energy policy. I have a renewable energy ratio policy, which means what is your percentage of recent sunlight that you use? You could run industry on, on, on without carbon. You could, you, you could run on renewable energy. It's hard. It's very hard, but our planes are going electrical. Our cars are going electrical. Why not focus on the inputs 
focusing on the inputs, only all you require is say how much energy you're consuming, how much of it are you willing to be renewable. And that's not electricity. That's transportation. That's heat. That's cooling. And nature has left us the ability to do it. She has awful surprises that you can do, use the sunlight to achieve all our modern desires that we have right now. Is it easy? No. But you will have to curve demand. You will have to improve efficiency. And you can go towards a sequestration. But guys like me say the best way to sequester carbon is to leave it under the earth. And of course, it pisses off everybody. Okay, but I'm like, you want a good sequestration technology? Don't take it out of the earth. But what does Canada do? No, 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 no. We'll spend all this money in R&D into sequestration. For what? For the coal plants. Well, all the coal plants are shutting down. Oh, yeah, but we'll do it for the tar sand. Yeah, but we could go EV. So we spend a lot of time looking at fixing at the problem. But as an engineer, sometimes the solution is not looking at the problem. You just turn around, you look at the input. And so you, you wouldn't f- be the one convincing people. Well, no, I look at the input and I basically say the problem and the waste will uh, fix itself if on the input we're all recent sunlight, biomass, hydro, sun, wind. I even invented new renewables that weren't even cataloged yet, and I got surprised. It's doable, but unlike the fossil fuel world where, when you, where you could do cookie cutters, where everything is reproducible worldwide in its very basic technology of the Brayton cycle and the Rankin cycle, now you have to be creative and every center, every community has to think about it. How do they pull in these low density? So people come up and they'll say, yeah, but it's all about high density. No, it's not. Electric vehicles. How often do we say electrical vehicles aren't dense, energy dense? That's because we were looking at the fuel tank. You got to look at the whole powertrain. When you look at the powertrain and you look at all the weight gain you get from going EV, now all of a sudden the EVs, the bus just went at 1,700 kilometers. How many buses on diesel do you know that go 1,700 kilometers? That was just last week. So we get caught in these mindset. We are unwilling to live a renewable energy future, which requires make decision on three things. Put all your energy renewable, be super efficient, and reduce your demand. If you want to be an energy hog, you're entitled. Renewable energy is not ointment. There's 100,000 times more than you need. It's not ointment. If you want to be wasteful, but be wasteful 100% renewable. If you want to live in, 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 in a very close quarter, you know, off grid and with very little needs, be so. And please accept, like have people come to your house and show them how to do it. But live on a fossil free diet. Live without fossil. So decarbonization, I mean, basically looking at the entire life cycle from start to finish about what is the carbon total carbon required to produce something. I, I agree. It's, it's, it's more than just energy demand. It's, it's where do we get the carbon from? How do we use the carbon? How do we basically make sure that it gets recycled properly? Absolutely, that's important. Now, transportation and energy use by buildings, of course, is the major source of greenhouse gases, which is the, the big problem we're confronted with. So we have to deal with that big problem. In terms of swimming upstream... I think the example of, you know, India and, and wireless communication is perhaps a counterexample to swimming upstream. I mean, in India, a generation ago, getting a telephone was impossible. I mean, you'd wait a decade to get a landline because that was the current technology. India and Africa leapfrogged over that using a newer technology, which is wireless transmission and mobile phones. The question is, can you 
have, I mean, we, the West, developed our economy using cheap, high-carbon energy, coal, to begin with, and, and liquid hydrocarbons later. But, you know, so we had that tremendous advantage. We had cheap energy. We didn't care about the pollution. We didn't care about the greenhouse gases. We've got a lot of the world that needs to develop up to a decent standard of living if we're going to reduce inequality. Part of the issue is what Eric said. We change our lifestyle so we're more energy efficient, and it's relatively straightforward to do that. I mean, we don't have to keep our homes at 20 degrees in the summertime and 25 degrees in the winter. I was in Switzerland for a meeting in Zurich, you know, one of the richest cities on earth, and I was sweltering in the meeting room because in Switzerland, it's against the law to install air conditioning unless you're a hospital. Because for the number of days a year you need air conditioning, A, it's a waste of the carbon required to produce air conditioners and the, 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 the propellants that go in them, and B, it's a waste of energy. You know, suffer for a few days. So the Swiss as a society have decided, even though they're fantastically wealthy, they can suffer for a few days for energy efficiency. So we, the energy gluttons, can reduce our energy usage, and hopefully renewable technologies can help sub-Saharan Africa develop up to a decent standard of living without having to burn coal. I'm hopeful about that part, at least. I um, I spent the summer of 2015 in uh, western Mongolia with um, some Kazakh Mongolian herders, the people who live in Gers. Uh, Gertz is the more familiar word, but it's Russian, so they hate it. Gers. Um, and they herd, and they milk, and they process the milk. And they have solar panels. Because they move, they move every they move every three months or four months, depending on the family. They follow their herds up and down the mountains as the grassland moves. Um, and there is electricity in the city, sort of most of the time. Uh, coal burning. Um, Ulaanbaatar is just you can hardly see across the street. But Western Mongolia is solar, and they're thinking about windmills, and they're thinking about things like. Um, hydro generators that you put in five gallon buckets. You know, so they're thinking small and they're just leapfrogging the whole idea of the grid. And I think that that is possible and I think we could take a lesson from that. But you're right. There's so, there's tremendous momentum behind Western societies. You know, we developed to this point with an injection of energy from, from coal. We borrowed from the past and we didn't pay attention to the future. And we need to stop. And yeah, there is a significant chance that that's going to be a crash landing. I'm, I'm afraid. But I also do think that there are solutions. And the other thing you said was really interesting to me as a storyteller about, you know, we're not paying attention to decarbonization. We, you know, kind of fudge the word decarbonization and skip straight to talking about renewables. If history and storytelling is any guide, the devil is always going to be in the details. We're going to fight about things like spices. And we're going to fight about things like weird dyes made out of snail shells. So we're probably going to fight about, what is that chemical that they mine in Africa that you use in photovoltaics? Coltan? We're probably going to fight about stuff like that. There are probably going to be choke points and tripping points and things that we don't see coming. Um, and probably you know, those are going to be the future stories. Well, maybe I guess people are tired of hearing us. I'm tired of, tired of hearing myself. But um, I will just live like uh, I think we're not conscious of all the development that's going to be. 
And I like to say there's ten, there's eight billion people. A lot of them are attending science classes. And the next generation, if you look at their projects, because I review high school project and stuff, they're working on stuff. I'm working on, for example, it's a few people have developed it around the world, a panel that's about a meter square that just reflects sunlight. And I'm going to go put it in First Nations. And I don't know how people are going to use it. Okay. I don't know if they're going to throw it in the garbage. Or will they come in, look at the sun, see how it reflects, put it in their house window in winter to reduce their energy bill, put it on flowers so they could grow herbs and stuff in the summer, and come up with a strategy of refocusing sunlight onto their land. And I don't even, I'm just developing the math because nobody in history was able to redirect sunlight for under a hundred bucks. And of course, it came from 3D printer technology. So I'm able to build it for under 100 bucks. My first one was $2,000 and I'll hit 100 bucks. Okay. But I have a lot of roadblocks ahead, but you could just imagine we're talking about solar and just building a house where you start thinking of your posts, where you're going to put your solar reflector. Is that in Ethiopia? Will people just ignore this invention? No, I think there'll be billions of them sold. I'll probably be dead by then, but we're probably the we'll most, keep your head in a jar. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's uh, I I fight the fights, I fight the struggles, I fight the people saying no all the time. But I'm like me, if I build a renewable energy house, I'm having at least thirty sunflowers. They're called sunflowers. They track the sun, and they'll work twenty four hours to you and re- reflect the sun where you want it. And all of a sudden, there's a paradigm shift. I see new math coming up, and I'm saying, oh, my God, we're sleeping. I'm in renewable energy, and I'm sleeping. I'm not seeing the math. I'm seeing that now an energy net zero can be can, can be maybe possible by separating, by concentrating sun and separating the frequencies. And all of a sudden, it's a brand new math. It's a brand new venture. And I see how many people are thinking like this around the world. How many people? And it is doable. It is doable. We will do it. There's no question. There's fantastic stuff for discovery. And the young generation, I train them to basically think outside the box and solve the issue, right? And I'm getting old, and I still fight in my basement, but I'm still going to continue the fight. What fight? Well, it's hard to, to, to work against fossil fuels because... They, they have participated into decades, decades of industrialization to bring their costs down. Huge amount of energy of humanity went into them. What will we do when we put our humanity and our thinking into, into making renewables, finding ways to be more efficient and finding productive ways to reduce our demand through the internet of things and stuff? And all of a sudden, we will live in a renewable energy future. And, and that renewable energy future is not renewable energy. It's a smart way of using efficiency, demand, and renewables and shying ourselves, leave that fossil fuel in the ground, sequester it. Nature found a way of sequestering. It's perfectly sequestered. Don't go take it out, coming up with all this brain stuff and brain drain to like put it back and taking the energy. The sun's there. Yes, it's lower density. Just got to be a bit smarter. All right. Science and math for the struggle. I think we're about out of time. Um, but hopefully um, our fantastic panelists can stick around uh, if you have any questions for them. Um, so please joining me in saying a big thank you, I, I, to mm. Eric, John, and Aaron. 
And also a big to all of you for joining us here on Otem Suesquewa Kitsigiskok Miti in space. Space, 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 space. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 